This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource, where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Welcome to the Oak Shape Podcast with me, Dan, the fitness man. What's up, guys? If you've never been to this podcast before, we're about working hard towards our goals year-round. I only have one goal. I want to kill a bull in 2021, and I haven't done that yet. The slate is wiped clean. I love archery elk hunting for a lot of reasons, but mainly because it gets me to new places. It's full of adventure. It's freaking hard. I like hard things that challenge me. We do it on public land, usually on over-the-counter tags. We fill the freezer up. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of my biggest whys in my life. Next to faith and family, it is elk hunting. We're going to talk about fitness. We're going to talk about nutrition, all those kind of things. But today we're going to talk about tag allocation. Today we're going to talk about how to get your hands on the best over-the-counter tag opportunities. A lot of the elk hunters that are successful year in and year out, you know, the 10 percenters, they get the best tags possible in their hands. And they don't like to share that information with you. They're not just getting run-of-the-mill tags and if they are they're going to areas that they know inside and out and they know where the elk are going to be when they get pressured and they will get pressured friends so today we're going to bring on a guest that we've had on before it's been over a year his name is Mark Livesey I didn't meet Mark till two years ago when uh, he was at Ryan Lampers's Western Hunting Summit the elk one and both of us were subject matter experts his expertise is in e-scouting and I will tell you I've learned a lot from Mark and I'm pretty good at e-scouting but I don't hold a candle to this guy's level 
of expertise. He's so niche. He's so detailed. He's so analytical. It's a huge strength. And so I'm going to plug his course on the podcast. I'll do it right now too. It's called Treeline Academy. It's an e-scouting masterclass. It's phenomenal. I haven't even finished it. I'm still going through it and learning as I go. I'm trying to go slow on purpose so I can really absorb the information and use it. And I teach some of the same principles that he teaches at my elk shape camps, but I don't know it to his level. And you got to stay in your own lane. And I, and I know a lot about killing an elk and about nutrition and fitness. And that's what I know. Everything else I usually... I sub it out. I get somebody who knows inside and out. And so that's Livesey, man. He's out of Missoula, Montana. He's not a Montana native. He spent 30 years living in Missouri and hunting out west. So he's got a lot of reps at doing scouting without boots on the ground. And before technology was really a thing, he was a map guy. And I think that helped him get to where he's at now because he is a technology guy. We're going to bring him on today and talk about some e-scouting principles. You're going to learn a lot from this podcast and at hour number two, that's right, this one's a long one, we're going to go over each state and give our two cents on should you be putting in, should you not, where should you be putting in points, and it's going to be a real good overview of the Out West elk tag allocation. You guys are going to dig it. Today's podcast is brought to you by Vortex Optics, Vortex Where I utilize the UHD 10x42s for hunting out west. I use a 65-millimeter spotter, angled, not straight, Trust me on that. You don't want a straight spotter. It's super uncomfortable. You can't glass as long. Get the angled. I usually pack a spotter because I'm always trying to phone scope if I can see elk and get the video footage via some sort of adapter. Uh, I do have their 4000 rangefinder. It's their Razor HD. That is awesome. They finally made a rangefinder that kicks almost every other rangefinder's butt out there. Honestly, I haven't found a better one. So that's what I use on their glass side. And then on their wear side, they do make badass clothing for working out, for scouting, for training, for hunting, all that kind of stuff. Vortex wear, look them up. The discount code is ELKSHAPE. That'll get you 20% off. Thank you guys. Wilderness Athletes still has an awesome offer. If you've never bought supplements from them before, try the Hydrate Recover, try the Energy and Focus, try like a like a post-workout protein. That's what I would start, multi-fish oil. Use the discount code ELKSHAPE30 and get 30% off your first purchase. Northwest Retention Systems makes custom gun holsters. They're not a sponsor of this podcast or anything like that, but I like them so much. It's a local guy. It's a side hustle. His name's Tim. He'll make a custom chest holster. It's called the Scout, and then your binos can go right over the top, and then you can pack heat when you're hunting in bear country or wolf country or whatever. Uh, look for the elk shape model. There's one with an actual elk shape logo on the front. And if you buy that one, you don't have to enter a discount code. There is zero shipping and handling, and it's a five-day lead time. And he's got molds for just about everything. And if he doesn't, he'll make it for you. The other company that's not a sponsor, but I do have a discount code to give you guys more value, is Stowaway Gourmet. They make, in my opinion, the best freeze-dried food out there with really respectable macronutrients. And it's not just garbage to put inside your body and try to perform well. Use the discount code ELK10 and save 10% off. Treeline Academy, this is the guest we have today. The discount code is ELKSHAPE. You'll get the course for $99. That'll save you quite a bit and get it sooner than later because I think it's really a good time to get going. NUMA Outdoors, that is the clothing that I'm using for my hunting. I have a discount code ELKSHAPE20. I have a link in the show notes. I really dig NUMA. I love their camo. 
I love the actual breakup and camo that they've chosen. It's really, really next level. Check my Instagram if you want to see some of the images. Really legit. So Elk Shape 20 will get you 20% off NUMA. They are a new proud partner, and I'm stoked to work with them. And while you're e-scouting, you might want to utilize Tag Hub from Eastman's and get the inside scoop on every draw and draw odds, and you can filter so many things, how many hunters are in every unit, uh, how many six points were killed in a unit, how many hunters per square mile. I mean, you can geek out. Check it out, and if you get it, use the discount code ELKSHAPE15, and that'll get you 15% off, and that'll be awesome. And lastly, Baku e-bikes. Uh, the discount code is ELKSHAPE300. That'll save you $300 on an e-bike. I just gave away my e-bike on an ELKSHAPE Chub Challenge in December. That guy's coming to pick up his bike this week as I record this. I'm stoked to meet Brian. He's going to have an awesome e-bike. He's going to have the mule. And this will get you $300 off. So save $300. Use the discount code ELKSHAPE300. Use it for some of your hunting. I know that I use it for date night with my wife because she's got an e-bike. But I also use it for whitetails slipping in and slipping out, hanging stands, checking cams, bear hunting, elk hunting, the list goes on. And I haul my kids around the neighborhood with the trailer. I love that thing. All right, guys, that's what I have for you all. Uh, elk Shape Camp's first one's coming up in Texas. I can't wait to meet you guys. That one is sold out. And the other camp that's sold out is the Lancaster, Pennsylvania. That one's sold out. And every other camp's got a few spots left, so it's not too late. You can check out elkshape.com if you want to come to an elk shape camp. Make yourself better. All right, guys, let's get into this podcast. It's a long one. Buckle up, take notes. We'll catch you at the end. Yep, I got headphones on. You can, I can hear you. I'm good. Well, dude, we had you on before. I don't really like bringing repeat guests on, but you know too much. And so I guess we have to have you back on. <laughs> I don't know about that, but we probably got a lot we can talk about, though. <laughs> well, I'm going to pick your brain. So here's the deal, Mark. Um, for those that don't know who Mark Livesey is, look up Treeline Pursuits on Instagram or go to his website. I talk about him on every podcast. I plug his e-scouting program. So today's like a free e-scouting podcast. You guys get to get information. And if you're into it and you want to get his course – Make sure you use uh, my discount code ELKSHAPE. That'll save you some dollars. Um, Mark, we're going to skip intros. We're going to get into your elk season. And I'm only going to give you a few minutes, but that's not very much time. But go through your elk season from the time you left your house to the time you were officially out of tags, out of seasons. <laughs> and I know you had more elk tags than I did. So let's hear it. Yeah, but I probably filled less tags than you did. I, it wasn't because I didn't have chances, though, that's for sure. Mm. Um, okay, so I left Missoula on August 24th. Um, I rolled over to Idaho, started my season there. I only spent about 10 days um, in Idaho, and I kind of made up my mind that I was looking for kind of a mature bull there because I knew I had a lot of elk tags. But as anybody that hunted Idaho this year, one of my bigger problems this year – it wasn't finding elk. It was getting away from people. Um, even with my llamas, I mean, I was running into dudes everywhere. So the, the area I was at is not, it's not easy to get away from people in general, just cause it's not very wide or not very, you know, it's just not very, um, remote. So 
the elk are there. They're just being shifted around a lot. So I know Idaho is a pain this year getting tags, but in the long run, I think it's going to be better for some of these units. They get a little bit more pressure than other units or regions, I should say. So anyway, I rolled into Idaho, had a great hunt. I probably missed the biggest bull of my entire 30-year career, opening day, <laughs> opening archery day of Idaho. I'm so I was so bummed about it. And so I missed him and it was a stupid mistake on my fault. It's a rookie mistake. It wasn't anything to do with, it was just a mistake. I can't blame anything else. Just, I got, I was not expecting to see a bull and I certainly wasn't expecting to see a bull like that two minutes into shooting light and caught me by surprise opening morning. And I just, I flubbed it. So but what I decided to do this year to kind of back up, Dan, was with my e-scouting stuff and having my course come out in June, I wanted to hunt all new areas. So I just, I went through the process exactly like I teach it in my course. I researched five different states, multiple hunt areas in every state, and I worked through that plan on every hunt. And every hunt I was on was a new area. So it was exciting to try, you know, all my tactics again on all brand new areas. So I'm one of those guys that I know you could have more success from time to time if you revisit areas that you learn. There's no, there's definitely a lot to be said about that. But in reality, I just, you know, I'm 55 years old. I'm living in Montana now. I've been here for five years. There's too many places on my checklist or you want to call my elk hunting bucket list. There's just too many places for me to go, Dan. And so I, I'm just like a, I'm like a gypsy when it comes to elk hunting. I am just rolling all over the place, trying new places, researching them. One, I'm testing my system. Two, I, that's just the way I like to do it. And that's kind of the reason that I kind of started down this e-scouting masterclass journey was because I've always been this way. So I've always had to do a lot of e-scouting. And coming from Missouri, I really had to do a lot. So I just personally, I think I'm pretty good at it because I've been doing it so long and I've been doing it so in-depthly for so long. Anyway, I rolled into Idaho with a friend of mine. My friend, uh, my buddy killed a bull, his first bull from Missouri. It was really great. So I spent a lot of time helping him, um, but we had a great hunt, but I did not fill my tag in Idaho. So I rolled from Idaho. I went straight to Wyoming and we hunted with six of us, uh, three tags were filled, some really nice bulls. I called in a really nice bull for Ty Stubblefield, friend of mine. And so we had some success there, but we had a little trouble getting into elk there. It wasn't because the elk weren't there, but we were running into wolf issues. Um, so we had to make some changes. And again, if I, if we would not, we were on plan number three. We were in hunt area number three before we started calling in and killing elk. So if we would not have had those options worked out, we'd have, we'd, we'd have been struggling. We'd probably been str struggling pretty significantly. So we ended up taking three. I came home for two days, see my kids. I've been gone for 15 days, I guess. Came back. I went back with my rifle, killed a bull first day. 12 miles in, <laughs> I was mm -hmm. only in there 24, 24 hours, killed a pretty nice bull, packed out, came home for a day, um, went to Montana, hunted, 
didn't get to hunt in Montana very long. And then I had to head for New Mexico. So I headed for New Mexico early October. I scouted for six days, six or seven days prior to the season. I've been trying to draw this tag for 21 years. Again, I hunted the same unit before, but it took me 21 years to draw the tag. So I drew that tag. So I went down there and spent quite a bit of time in New Mexico, just scouting and looking at hundreds of bulls. It was crazy. It was really unbelievable. The weather was super crazy hot. So I had to be, I'm a solo. So I had to be really careful how far I got from the road. I was worried about the meat. So I ended up having to put a, like a limit on myself of about two miles. Mm. I figured I could get, you know, two miles with, it was 85, 90 degrees. Um, I knew it was going to take me all day. And I was a little worried about that. So ended up killing the bull on the third day. Pretty nice bull, pretty close actually to the truck. Wasn't too bad. And um, packed, got it out. And then I was supposed to hunt Utah on my way back. But I hadn't seen my family now for almost a month. So I went ahead and bailed on Utah. So I did not even try for my fifth tag. And uh, I figured I'll just save it. You know, use it. In, I won't use the tag, obviously, but just save Utah for another day. And my friend had been, my buddy I was supposed to go with, had been doing a lot of scouting in Utah. And he was having trouble locating elk and stuff. So we just, I just kind of bailed on it. So then I came back and met up with the guys from Bearded Butchers which was really a great hunt. I really didn't know those guys at all. And I met them through Cody Rich with the Rich Outdoors and through his podcast. And he met them at a, a hunting summit or a something. I don't know how he met them, but if you haven't checked out these bearded butcher guy, you should. They they process meat and they, they go through whitetail and elk and everything. So the goal was, was to kill an elk and film the butchering of it. So we marched into Montana and we went to one spot first that looked great. He scouted it. It looked amazing. And we got in there and there's so much snow. It was, it was thigh deep snow. So we, I, the elk had been there, but they just, they had moved. So we had to go to plan B. So again, we had to resort to a second option. We should have checked the snow layers like I teach in my course before we went, but we did not. And well, we knew there was snow. We just underestimated how deep it was, to mm. be totally honest with you. Yeah. You know, we thought we knew it was there. We just didn't, you know, once we got up into the elevation that we wanted to be at, it was deep. So we kind of we hunted for just a couple of days and we realized that the elk had were definitely not in there. So we packed out there and moved almost across the state, to be honest, and uh, moved into another area. And that I had e scouted, rolled into there, elk everywhere. Elk were literally everywhere, thousands of elk. And we could not turn up decent bulls. It's just the bulls, there was not enough snow in that area. There's snow in the other area. This spot had almost no snow. And the bulls were not coming down with the cows yet. So we had a bunch of freaking cows and a bunch of little bulls. And, um, but anyway, we hunted for a few days with them. We had opportunities, missed a bull, had a couple of opportunities, but they did not get a bull. So I really didn't hunt there. I, I mean, obviously I had my tag and my gun. And so um, that kind of wrapped up rifle season with them. And then I had to go back to Missouri. So I pretty much hunted from August, kind of a quick version from late August until mid-November. And I think I had nine days off in there. Oh, and then I went Eastern Montana and 
uh, mule deer hunted for a couple for about well about a week I guess. So, um, but had a good season. Killed two elk. I can't complain. Um, I had four tags, but really the fourth tag was a B tag, was a cow tag, and I didn't even try to fill it. I I could try to fill it now if I wanted to, but so really I legitimately tried to kill three bulls and I killed two of the three. So it wasn't quite as good as yours, Dan, but it was still pretty good. And I had a great season, all new spots. And, um, it was fun. I really had a great time this year. The weather got a little rough a couple times around the beginning of rifle season in Montana. So it kind of put a damper on a week. I took a week. I had to kind of reorientate myself because the weather was so bad. I, I kind of just took a few days and, and kind of waited for the weather to clear up and then went in with those guys. So in a nutshell, that was kind of it. It's a heck of a season, man. It's pretty hard to be gone from your family that long. I, I can appreciate that. I, I think that the fact that you were able to kind of at one point make a decision that I, Hey, I need to see my family. I know I could go to Utah, but I'm going to just veto that. That's like classic being an adult, which I struggle to, to do that. But uh, the other thing you mentioned that was really interesting was the 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 bearded butcher guys. I just found them on YouTube about a month ago, and I literally watched an hour long video on how to make summer sausage because I've I just want to do that with the next bear I kill. And holy, those guys are like out of Ohio or somewhere, and they do such a good job. And it's kind of like you don't even realize you're watching it for that long. They kind of suck you into these. I don't know. Maybe it's just something about me and a, a man just like to, and I guess I should say women too, but there's just something about cutting up meat. <laughs> I don't know. You kind of get sucked into watching it. And, um, but those guys, they had never been out West before. They honestly have really never been much out of Ohio before. They've never hunted out of state. I don't believe they've never hunted with a rifle. It's a shotgun state. That's right. So it was a crazy new experience for them and both of their videos are out now so if you want to check them out both of the montana the Monta- they filmed the hunt that we were on okay and bo- yeah and both of the part one and part two with those guys is out we took the llamas in they loved that and so i was really kind of long for the ride trying to help them more than anything so and I, and you know i love to kill elk there's no doubt about it but the older i've gotten I have, I spend a lot more time to taking people than I used to. I used to be crazy selfish about my elk seasons. I mean, I very rarely let anybody squeeze into my schedule. Never. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but moving out here and having some friends back in, you know, in Missouri and having friends here is I love calling out and I, I like going with God. I'm, I'm hunting with more people, even though I spend about half my season solo the other half I spent really trying to help other people kill their elk. So absolutely, I love, I get almost, I know it sounds weird for a lot of guys, especially Eastern guys, but I get so much out of being involved with the process. I don't necessarily have to be the trigger man. And so I, I, I really love it, you know? And so we had great success with that. Lots of the guys I was with killed elk. So we, my llama's got a, we, we packed out a lot of elk. I can tell you that. And, um, so it was a good season. Really enjoyed it. Well, let's talk about e-scouting because I would, I could sit here and BS about the elk season all day long with you, but that's not going to serve the listeners and what's going to serve them 
is to get into your knowledge on e-scouting. I want to tell you that um, e-scouting saved my deal this year in 2020. I don't know. When did I meet you? Maybe two years ago in person at Lampers' summit? At the summit, yeah. And I was there to talk about fitness or something, some rah-rah motivational speaker, blah, blah. But when you talked, I was a student. I just took notes and listened, and I applied that knowledge. And so going into 2020, I purposely or intentionally hunted all new areas for myself to almost probably do what you were doing, like te- like stretch myself, make me put myself in the shoes of the people that attend elk shape camps. They can't, you know, they can't scout from Ohio, and so they got to rely on e scouting. So I did that, picked all new areas, and e scouting saved my butt. I always had a next plan, and I don't know if I hunted really the same spot more than a day or two. Certainly never two days in a row. And always tried to sleep either in my spike camp, which was portable, or in the back of my truck, which was portable. And I've never gassed my truck up as many times as I did this year. Just literally always driving, always moving. And doing it in an intelligent way. Like, we we generally change locations in the dark. Like, you get back to the truck super late, and you get in your truck, and you drive to the next trailhead. Um, et cetera, et cetera. And I got to give you the credit, man. Like, uh, I actually made hunt plans, never done that before. The proof is in the pudding. I always had, I always kind of knew the area without stepping foot in. I always had my suspicions then I could confirm them. And just, I was real gypsy like as well. And I like that. So I want to tap into your knowledge on that. So let's go through, just outline your e-course a little bit. The masterclass. I want to highlight a few areas. I have it pulled up. I am prepared, Mark, today. <laughs> and uh, I want to name a few things and talk about them kind of a little bit in depth, maybe f- a few minutes on each. So the first thing I think is identifying core hunting areas followed by establishing zones of pressure. That could be a whole podcast in itself. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it's funny. I want to point out something you said that I talk about a lot in the courses. I see so many guys that get so excited about elk camp and they, they pack their trailers, they pull out these um, two wheel tandem or tandem trailers and they've got wall tents in them and they, they just set up this small city to elk hunt. And there is nothing wrong with that. And if that's your cup of tea, I mean, I'm not here to tell you that's not the way to go. I'm just here to tell you that you're putting all your eggs in, in a really specific basket, I guess I should say. And I am a big believer that if you really want to hunt elk and you really want to see the the country and be exposed to as many opportunities as possible, I feel the best way to do it is to stay as mobile as possible. And the more elaborate you set up the camp, guys, I've done it, guys. When I came from Missouri, we used to do that. We'd set up these giant camps and then we'd, we, you know, we'd see a few elk. What the problem was, we'd see just enough elk to keep us there because we'd be like, well, man, this camp is, it's going to take us a whole day to move over to there. Let's just keep hunting here. And it just, it hurt our success because we were, we didn't want to tear down this camp and move. But if your camp is thin and it's mobile and it's not, 
super deluxe and it's not one if it's not super comfortable let me just say if it's not super comfortable you're not gonna have buyer's remorse about packing up and moving <laughs> that's a fact you know, it's a fact and the more comfortable and i'm not saying don't have a comfortable elk and i'm just saying the more uncomfortable you are the more hunting is actually going to take place I know that sounds weird, but if you're sleeping in, if you find yourself sleeping in, or you find yourself getting back to camp early, or you find yourself taking a half a day off, if you find these things, start asking yourself, is my camp too comfortable? Am I am I feeling better in camp than I am in the mountains while I'm hunting out? And if that's the case, sometimes it can pull you into that trap. Does that make sense, Dan? I don't know if I, if I said that correctly, but it can really be a detriment to your hunt. So I'm a big proponent to telling guys to be as mobile as possible and working those hunt areas. You talk about the core hunt areas. It's a huge part of the course. Setting up five of those, I usually recommend. Now, some areas, you know, if I really feel like I'm confident, I might only do three, but I don't think I've ever been on an elk hunt, ever. Well, once I started using this technique, that I go with less than three. And one of them is always a base camp operation, meaning from a vehicle. Because the reason is, is because people get hurt. Look at you, Dan. I mean, you ran a knife through your freaking hand. Mm -hmm. um, now, I know you probably back out there the next day. But if you twist your knee or you need to take a break, guys, having an option that you can hunt from the rig and having a hunt strategy planned out is, is you've almost got to have one to really maximize your time, even if you're a backpacker, because things can happen. You could kill and only have a couple days and maybe the base camp option is maximizes your time. Maybe you have an injury, maybe you get fatigued, maybe you get altitude sickness, all kinds of things could happen on your hunt that could make you wanna pull out that deck of cards and select the base camp hunt option. Now, you may not ever use it or you may not ever want to use it, but even today with my llamas, even when I go with my llamas, I've always got a plan that's within driving distance of where I'm at that I can do a reasonably good car camp, so to speak, and hunt from there just because of those things. And I can't tell you how many times I've had to use that for all kinds of situations. So core hunt areas, to recap, I always recommend like in the course three, I usually work out five. I always have a base camp option, even if I'm backpacking. And another one I always have, Dan, and I only started this about four years ago, I guess, when I had a nightmare situation, was I always have one of them at a radically different elevation. In case I run into, like, for example, the last couple of years in Montana, the opening day has been, the weather's been insanely bad. Yeah. And if you have a different elevation strategy, you're ready to go. But if you don't, you're going to drive into town, try to find cell service, or worse, try to work something out on the side of the road. You, I'm, I can almost tell you guys, if you're listening, especially for you guys that have not ever hunted elk before, when you're on the side of the road trying to figure out where you're going to elk hunt, not many things good are going to happen. Now, could you get lucky? Of course. Could you, you know, could you strike gold? Of course. But it is a very difficult proposition to be on the side of the road in a stressed out situation in the middle of your hunt, trying to figure out what are we going to do now? And I've been there. I'm sure Dan, I'm sure you've been there. And, but it's always better for me 
when I can pull my hunt plan out, look at those core hunt areas, got to read the, oh, you know what? This one's at this, I'm going to move to this one. Even though it might be number two, I'm feeling like this is it. Whatever the case, doesn't matter. I'm just saying having these pre-worked out, man, it gives you so much confidence and it gives you just a, a feeling of um, purpose. I know it sounds weird, but it's true. You know exactly what you're going to do. You, you've you got things worked out. You've already got your maps downloaded. That's part of the process. You've already got all your offline data. You've already got all your hunt points, all your prime spots kind of marked in all these areas. You've got a strategy worked out, whatever that strategy is, and you're ready to implement it. But when you're on the side of the road, you just don't make good decisions. You're dehydrated. You're fatigued. You've got the pressure of the hunt. You got your buddies screaming at you about, hey, what are we going to do? You've got the people have bummed you out, or maybe let's say there's too many people at the trailhead or too many hunters in your area, and that's why you got to switch. That's on your mind. So there's so many factors that are just not good situations to make good judgment calls when you're trying to figure those situations out. Mm-hmm. Okay, guys, winging it is not a good idea for what he just said there. There was a lot there. I'll condense it down to you'll be – basically under stress making stress decisions and you can categorize fatigue dehydrated pressure whatever you you don't want to fall back on winging it you want to fall back on the plans you made in your warm cozy office from a desktop so let's move on so covid crowding is not going to go away in my prediction my crystal ball shows 2021 will be similar if not worse and so i want to talk about establishing zones of pressure before you even worry about where are the micro meadows where are the feeding zones the bedding zones the north facing slopes the basins all that cool sexy stuff people are looking on google earth who gives a shit let's figure out where everybody's bottlenecking so with obviously your course dives deep let's give them a surface level of establishing zones of pressure okay so zones of pressure is probably the most it's probably the most discussed and it's the most it generates the most questions in my entire course because I spent a lot of time on it. And if you notice the way the course is laid out, Dan, the first, you don't, we don't even talk about finding the sexy elk finding features. I don't think until module 10. Good. And I know people are, and I'm noticing the course, Dan, I can see everybody, there's progress. So many guys are jumping ahead. <laughs> I'm telling you, don't do it. There's a process to this. And whether or not you use the entire process, that's not really here or there. But I think by absorbing the process and hearing the process, you'll be able to pick out the nuggets or you'll be able to craft your own way of doing it. So I really advise you to pay attention and really focus on the realities, the limitations, the core hunt areas, and now the zones of pressure. So the zones of pressure, I get so many questions. It's probably the most important part of an elk hunt for me. You know, if, if obviously finding features is important, but you, before you can find a feature, you've got to put yourself in a place that the elk are more likely going to be. Then you can start pinpointing where specifically they're going to be. Too many guys get caught up in looking for a feature. Like they're looking for a North slope. Are they looking for some benches? Are they looking for this nice drainage? And that's kind of the end of it. They're like, I'm going to go in there. Mm -hmm. And they never, 
and they never really evaluate it for the complete picture. How many, where can you access this thing from? What's the points of entry? How difficult is the entry? How do the features lay out? Is there more than one elk finding feature or is it just a good north facing slope? I mean, north facing slopes, guys, I know I talk about them a lot and a lot of people always message me, well, I found elk on the south. I found elk on the east. Of course you do. North is definitely not the only place you're going to find elk. I'm just saying, if you gave me a mountain range and you told me I had 24 hours to find an elk and I could only spend time on one slope, it would be the north. Now, that doesn't mean I won't find them on the south, east, west, or any other slopes. It just means that the odds, and we talk about this in the course a lot, and that's that goes with, with the zones of pressure, we're looking for odds multipliers. We're looking for things that increase our odds, and then we're looking to stack those, meaning we're trying to find multiple things that will increase our odds, not just one, not just the north slope. And zones of pressure is the first starting point. It is a tremendous odds multiplier. It's probably the most. It probably increases your odds the most. Now, does that mean you can't hunt near pressure? No. It just means you have to know what you're doing and you have to know you have to analyze the area and kind of make some calls based on where you think that pressure is going to come from, how they're going to access this unit, how they're going to move around in this unit, and what the elk might do in response to that pressure. So if you're in Oregon, I get a lot of calls from, I'm not calls, but questions from Oregon guys. Mark, I can't do your technique with the two-mile circles around every trailhead and a one-mile buffer around every road. If we did that, we have no place to hunt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, there's roads everywhere. And I'm like, I know, but you're missing the point. You still do it. And you're going to be amazed at what's going to show up on your screen. I'll tell you, it's actually easier. I know people are going to kill me for saying this. But in some ways, it's easier to set up your zones of pressure for a higher trafficked area than it is for a super remote area. So what I want to say by that is once you do the circles and the buffer zones and everything we talk about in the course, once you set up this buffer zone and start looking at the zones of pressure, where the pressure's coming from, there's not much left on your map, right? Mm -hmm. In Oregon. Well, that pretty much tells you where you need to go. So it, what I'm saying is it leaves you less options, but it gives you, it makes it easy to pick. When you're looking at super remote areas and the whole dang map doesn't have any pressure zone, then you got to figure out where in this giant no pressure area are the elk going to be. Does that make sense, Dan? Did I, did I say that correctly? For So now I'm not saying it's easier. I'm just saying that in some cases, it, all, that ro- all those roads, all those trailheads, the logging operations, everything that goes on in Oregon, the zones of pressure is even more important. Because you can really find some gems. Look for areas. Let's say you draw a two-mile circle around every trailhead, for example. And you draw all these circles, and it looks like the whole area is covered in these zones. Look for where the two circles touch. Look for where the two circles barely overlap. Look for little pockets that don't overlap. So even though there's not gonna, they're not going to be huge areas, the elk know where those areas are. And then you start looking at those areas. For elk finding features, you don't exactly. 
So what I'm saying is just because those two circles overlap does not mean there's going to be elk there. Or I'm sorry, you're looking for a little remote spot where they barely overlap. It has to have the elk finding features as well. So what the zones of pressure does, Dan, for me, it sets up areas that you, then you're going to break down and look for areas that have the features that you're looking for. You're not only going to go hunt those guys just because it's remote or just because the circles don't reach or just because the zones don't, because it's, you know, it, it's outside the zones of pressure. That does not mean that's a good elk hunting spot. Now, that's an odds multiplier. That's one odds multiplier. But then you find a spot like that that does exhibit some of these 10 features that we talk about in the course. Let's say it has three of them. It has a north slope, has some benches. It has a drainage in the bottom with no trail, no established trail. That's a gold zone, guys, right there. Mm-hmm. Um, just that little setup. You're outside the zones of pressure. You got a nice north slope. You've got some benches three quarters of the way up. You've got a drainage in the bottom of that with no established trail. That's on my hit list right there. That is definitely on my hit list. Now, I may find other spots that are better than that. I'm just paint, I'm just trying to paint the picture here that the zones of pressure is one of the most important odd multipliers that you can do, but it's certainly not the end of the game. A lot of guys only look, how many guys do you know that'll turn on Onyx and they'll hit the, um, what's the layer that shades in purple? Ah, the road. The roadless. They turn on the roadless and they look for the purple or the white, whatever. Well, that's okay. But you know what? That's what every other hunter's doing too. That's what every Cody and I talked about this a lot in his podcast. Every other hunter's looking at that. But what you're looking, what I'm looking for is areas that are maybe near that white, but have the features that I'm looking for, not just because it's roadless. Uh, I know that's a subtle statement, but it is a, an important statement, not just because it's roadless and look for, you know, we talked about this, Dan, look for places that you got difficult geogra. We talk about a lot of podcasts talk about this, but it's so true. And so many people forget it. Look for places where you got to cross the Creek or a river. You got to climb a Canyon to get over. There's lots of things that you can use to your advantage that don't necessarily have to mean they're going to be 40 miles from the nearest road. Um, but if you're going to a trailhead that has, it looks like a Walmart parking lot, you're going to, and, and I talk about that in the zones of pressure, how to break down and analyze trailheads. I, I look at every single trailhead guys, every trailhead in my own areas with Google earth at the maximum zoom. This is a good <laughs> tip. If you're going to get a tip on this podcast, this is a good one. Not many guys take the time to do this. I look at every single access point. Dead end, we talk about what those are. Dead end roads, trailheads, campgrounds, any obvious parking spots. I mark them all. And I go back and I analyze every single one of them at the maximum Google Earth resolution. I don't do it in the field with the with the uh you know the the lower resolution images that are available in the hunt platforms. I don't you do it with Google Earth at the maximum zoom. You can see, you can clearly see. How much trailhead, how much pressure that trailhead gets? Does it look like, is, is there enough room? Does it look like there's been a hundred cars parking there? <laughs> or worse, can you see cars parked there? Use Google Earth, scan back through the historical image, find a September image, look at the trailheads. 
How many cars are there? Guys, it's it's great stuff to do, but this stuff all has to be done in advance. This cannot be done in the field very well. So analyze the trailheads. Guys, I looked at a trailhead one time. I couldn't, it seriously looked like a Walmart parking lot. And I'm like, well, I mean, that doesn't mean I won't go there. It just means I really got to understand what I'm doing before I go there. Does that, I hope that was kind of long winded, but no, dude, this is such good stuff. Let's go. Let's give some real life examples from 2020 season. I'll start because you made me think the whole time. Like I got to go back to North Idaho, Mark. Um, that's where I grew up elk hunting. I'm not from North Idaho, but there's a lot of dead elk that I've killed in North Idaho. And I didn't always tag out. Hell, there was a time when I used to buy my first elk tag at the gas station on the way to North Idaho, and then I would kill a bull, archery, and drive, you know, get it off the mountain, drive back into town, buy my second over-the-counter elk tag in Idaho, non-res. There was no, like, barely getting a tag like this year. So, lots and lots of years of hunting North Idaho. And I'm going to tell you right now, I know a lot of units in North Idaho. There's nine of them. I damn near know all of them inside out. And there's not a lot of places to get away from roads, horse trails, dirt bike trails, four-wheeler trails, national forest roads, logging roads. Some are gated. Some aren't. Some, it doesn't matter if it's gated. People don't follow the rules. Blah, blah, blah. Man, there's so many places in North Idaho that, you know, if you did your due diligence and you found kind of your zones of pressure you would find places where the two mile radius circle on the map touched, but you'd start dissecting the features. And if you really started looking, you'd be like, Oh, I can see why elk don't care about that pressure. They have it made They They live in a brush field. They will, you will never sneak up on them. They'll always hear you coming. The wind will always swirl in that feature. They'll always wind you. They always have escape routes. So I just laugh because if you really like understand a systematic approach and dissect your areas now, you're going to make up, you're going to have a huge advantage. And I hate that we're sharing this, but at the end of the day, fortunately, this is my opinion of elk hunting. It boils down to like what's between the ears and how hard you can just grind to get it done. You can know all this stuff and it's still elk hunting still really hard, especially public land. Like it's just, you got to have some luck and you got to not give up. The other thing I was thinking about Mark was like, I went to brand new Idaho area. It took me, uh, well, I hunted Idaho and Montana kind of back and forth, but I didn't kill an elk till September 12th. And I had to look at I literally had to go back to base camp, look at zones of pressure and guess where the elk were hiding from all the hunting pressure. And I've already told this story in this podcast, but the bottom line is I hiked in the dark and I didn't hear my first bugle till like nine 30 in the morning. And I didn't see much elk sign. It just took me forever to get to where the elk were getting in just an hour or two and had phenomenal elk hunting finally and killed a bull that, I give credit to you, man. That is establishing your zones of pressure. When I was in Wyoming, again, a brand new to me unit, never stepped foot, had all my hunt plans, pretty much covered the entire unit while I was down there moving so much. And one of the biggest things we did was cross a really big river in the dark every day. 
or scale really cliffed out stuff that's kind of sketchy in the dark and wouldn't you know it would pop into little honey holes. I can't tell you enough. Like those are two. Like those are a few examples from this year where I really am using the stuff you're talking about. Your turn. Give us some examples of how you basically do this, how you operate. Okay, so what I look for a lot of times, guys, is try not to get. You know, there's so many things we talk about. I'm just going to give you a few things. But for me, one of the things that I've started not doing. I almost hate to even say this. Oh. This is one of those nuggets I don't say very often, but Dan, since it's you, I will. Yay. Um, one of the things I do, guys, is I try to eliminate trailheads. I just don't go to them. There's just too much. They're hunter magnets. There's just too much going on at those trailheads. I will find a trailhead that has a super long access road to it, and I will start looking at things halfway between the road where you turn off and the trailhead. Gold. Oh, my gosh. I have found so many great elk spots on the way to a crazy trailhead, like 10, 12 miles away from a trailhead before you get there. Cause nobody stops on the way to the trailhead. I, now I shouldn't say nobody, but for example, there's a spot that I hunt in Montana or I did hunt. It's 50 miles of dirt road. And it finally ends at this dead end. Dead ends and trailheads to me are the same thing. Oh God. Dead end roads are the devil. Stay away. Dead end roads are hunter freaking magnets. So don't think I'm going to drive all the way to that dead end road and I'm going to have the place to myself. No, you're not in most cases. Now, could be, maybe, but those dead end roads are easy to find. Trailheads, easy to find. Campgrounds, easy to find. They can set up their RVs. They can do all their, they can set their four wheelers. They got their big old wall tents up. Guys, those are hunter magnets. I scratched those off my list right off the bat. I look for places where there's no obvious pull-off spot. You're just pulling off the side of the road and you're going in. No trail. No trail. Now, what I do look for is I look for ways to get onto a trail. Maybe it's a mile and a half bushwhack from the road. And then I'll eventually connect to a trail that's a long ways away from a trailhead or something. And then I'll then I'll use the trail to access. Uh, lots of times it's not i'm not trying to say that i go completely off-road all the time but i can tell you right now this is another tip the more time you spend off the trail the more elk you're going to see i i don't know how else to say it guys people walk those trails they never get off those trails they bugle from those trails they they spend their entire life on those freaking trails i i know so many hunters that will hunt an entire day and virtually never leave the trail They'll just walk the trail out to a certain point, turn around, walk the same trail back. They'll bugle, bugle. If something responds, maybe then they'll get off the trail. If you don't think elk know where trails are, I don't know what to tell you, but they know. And they know where the roads are. And they find ways to work around those. Now, I when I'm on a trail, if I'm hiking on a trail, I'm not necessarily looking for tracks on the trail. I'm looking for tracks that cross the trail. They're very subtle and sometimes they're very hard to see trails and elk, you know, elk trails that are perpendicular to the, to the established trails. Elk have no problems crossing the trails, but they sometimes you'll be walking on a trail. How many times have you ever been on a trail? And you're like, man, there's no elk out here walking on this trail at all. Well, part of the reason might be because there's too many people walking on that trail. 
And so I, you know, I try to spend, I guess what I'm trying to say is I try to spend as much time off a trail. Now, when I say off the trail, I'm not talking five miles. You can get a quarter to a half mile away from an established trail and you're in freaking the Mecca of elk hunting. I've had it happen to me so many times, but I rarely will find the elk hunting Meccas along the trail. I mean, I don't know what your experience is, Dan, but just, I mean, it happens. Of course it happens. So like day one in Wyoming this year, we got there, set up camp, and we took um, probably two hours and drove as many National Forest Service roads as possible on dirt bikes. The reason why we go on dirt bikes is because we, we literally can go so fast on dirt bikes compared to anything. And we're literally just jamming down every road and spur road and taking inventory at every trailhead, all the trucks parked, the stickers on the back of the truck, all the campers, who's got block targets or morale targets at their camp. We're figuring out who's hunting, where they're hunting. And then we wanted to hunt that day because we don't, we don't skip days of hunting when it's open, you know, it's open. And we found a road that was like five or six miles long and it had a dead end and a trailhead. And we went about th three or four miles. And this road was a two track. I wouldn't take my full size truck up it. Maybe a taco, but not really. You'd, you'd only want to take a, a side by side or a four wheeler. And we literally just pulled over. We knew that we had to go about two miles bushwhack and we'd hit a series of benches and then we'd have a nice vantage on the backside. Elk Mecca. And I don't even know what the end of the road looked like. Didn't want to find out because that's we, we think the same way. And guys, this is such good information. This is the one podcast you're going to want to probably re-listen, take notes, and then pay up, sucker. Get, get Mark's course and invest. Now, I have your course, and I still – I've had it for I don't know how many months, and I still haven't made it through it. I'm, it says I'm on – I'm on Mastering Google Earth Pro, which... Oh, you're not even close. But I did skip ahead to one section, which was establishing zone. I know, establishing zones of pressure. And then I'm going to go... I'm just about done with that. I got about five minutes left on that video. And then I'm going back to Mastering Google Earth Pro, which I'm, I'm a pro on Google Earth, but I'm an amateur compared to you. And... We did an awesome podcast. I encourage everyone to go back to the first time Mark was on this podcast. We literally did a podcast where we told you to have Google Earth pulled up and then Basemapper, Onyx, or Gaia pulled up. And we talk you through how to like mark it up, transfer to your mapping platform. Go back and listen to it. I'll leave a link in the show notes. But the cool thing about your course is it's – evolving it's not like you just added a whole nother section on um identifying like i believe places to glass is that correct i think you're gonna you particularly i'm really anxious to see because you're one of my few friends that is google earth crazy like me and i think you are going to be one of the guys that will really geek out on this one this glassing module i think is I mean, I know I'm tooting my own whore here, but there's nothing like this out there nowhere. There are tools and techniques in that module that I have never seen 
anywhere on any forum on any never talked about on any podcast never even been discussed and there's three or four things in that module that I have never seen anywhere else I don't know why now I think there's guys that are using them but I don't think they're talking about it that much and when it comes to glassing spots particular and not only glassing, but for other aspects, it, it's, I think it's one of the best modules. I spent over a month um, after I wrote this module, I spent over a month fine tuning it, retweaking it. I recorded this module three different times because I just couldn't get happy with it, with the examples primarily. I go through some examples and really show you how to use these some of these tools. And I, had, I ended up having to record it three times because I just wanted it to be what I wanted it to be. And so I think you're really gonna like this glassing module. It's an hour and a half. And I do wanna say this, I know Dan, you said, guys, it's not easy to work through this course. I'm just gonna be upfront. It's long, it's detailed. Now I try not to repeat myself a lot. I, I, I write every module out before I do it so I don't get down too many rabbit holes. But I think that if you take the time, do it at your pace. Don't try to do it all in one night. Just do it over the course. That's why I give you two years of membership. No other platform that I know of does that. Because I know it's going to take you two years to get your e-scouting game dialed. And I want to help you get it dialed best I can. So it's a two-year membership because of the sheer amount of content. And I know it's going to take you that long to really fine-tune your game. Because, guys, I can tell you how to write a hunt plan for me. I can tell you how I define hunt areas. I can tell you how I use Google Earth. But really, you're going to have to watch these modules, try some things for yourself, and find what works for you. Like, guys, I'm starting to use Basemap now more. It's got some really great stuff. But it's got some freaking major problems for me with a couple of things. But not, not anything that I couldn't use it. But there's a couple of things. And Onyx, same thing. Gaia, same thing. I tell, I say this over and over in the course. It's like trying to fix your car with a screwdriver. Are you going to only use one tool? When you go elk hunting, do you only want to use one tool that will dictate your success? Now, if you do, that's fine. And you're welcome to do it. And this course will work for you no matter if you if you're an onyx dyed in the hard wool fan of onyx the only thing you ever use you don't even want to hear it's like it's like a four-letter word if you say anything else so be it no problem but i found that you use the right tool for the right job in the right area and the right application we spend a lot of time in the course talking about that sometimes it's gaia sometimes it's onyx sometimes it's base map but when i'm at home e-scouting it's always Google Earth, always. Now, I'll have Gaia open, I'll have Onyx open, I'll be jumping back and forth. But guys, there's nothing better than Google Earth still, even with these hunt platforms. This 3D stuff, I'm not gonna get into it on this podcast, but in that module, that glassing module, Dan, you just talked about it, I go through the 3D with a fine tooth comb in gohunt.com, in Onyx, and in Google Earth, and I show you why I use it, when I use it, what the deficiencies are, where the high spots are for each one of those platforms. But when it comes to tilt, 
and 3D and the best view, the highest zoom resolution and the most features, it's Google Earth. Now, you might be saying, well, I can't do fires. I can't do topo. I can't do um, zones of pressure. I can't do motor vehicle use roads. I can't see the hunting units. I can't, all these things. Yes, you can. Uh, yeah, you can. You you teach that. Google Earth. Yeah. You do all of it. And that's where I think a lot of people, um, like I'll give you one more tip. In all of the hunt platforms, base map, Gaia, Onyx, the furthest you can go back with fire zones is 2000. Guys, there's a lot of damn fires before 2000. <laughs> and if you stumble into one of those places and it's not on your map, you're going to wish you didn't. Yeah. So I so I double check all of my fire zones with Google Earth always cuz they go back to the 80s. Mm, that's and next so that, level. The, it's a great tip guys. So for example, you get a whole hunt area worked out and you're really excited about it, I will jump over to Google Earth and I'll check it out just to be safe, just to make sure I didn't miss something and just to make sure I didn't have a fire that I didn't know was there. Um and I've heard some of the I don't want to name a hunt platform but i've heard some of them are going to go back and they're going to start from 2010 i'm like why would you do that i mean i want to know where those old fires are those things they can still not only can they still be good but more but the real problem is they can be horrendously difficult to navigate once the trees start to fall those places turn into nightmare zones it's also not a place to pitch your tent <laughs> exactly it's very dangerous for that and so these are just a lot of things i know we're kind of all over the place but google earth and setting it up correctly we talked about this is really really valuable and i think it's personally i think it's worth the value of the course just for that yeah well let's talk about tag allocation and kind of in there i think we've pumped everybody up on e-scouting and given some pretty pertinent information on how to be next level, but let's talk about tag allocation and kind of how to plan for the unknown. Like myself, I prefer to have two elk tags, obviously out of state. Uh, I live in Washington, guys. I will always have a Washington elk tag. I have to buy one in order to apply for the limited entry, limited quota areas in my state. And so do you guys. If you want to put in for Washington, it's a flawed system. You, you end up with an elk tag. Even if you're just putting in, it's terrible. So uh, Washington's got 350-plus bulls, several units, but they're very hard to get tags, and it is a uh, a bonus point system. So it's very much you could draw with zero points, one point. You could have max points of 25 years and still not draw your elk tag. So I try to, get, I try to pull an Idaho and then one other tag, whether it be Montana – or Wyoming, or 13 years ago, I used to draw New Mexico, which I still don't, um, things like that. That's kind of my strategy is like, I'd like to have two tags. Uh, last year I ended up with three, uh, actually four, if you count Washington, but that was just an anomaly. Like usually I don't draw that, but, uh, how about you? Like you also have a lot of time off. We do get the comments must be nice. And I do want to just I want to put an asterisk next to that. I've quit jobs for elk hunting. I've been obsessed with elk hunting since age 20. I My whole life is set up so that I can. 
I am very intentional with my family year round so that I can be set up to be gone. We can do a whole podcast on lining up childcare, lining up family vacations, working on your job so that it's running when you're not there. But I don't feel sorry for anyone. You get your life is what you make it. And I'm not apologizing for that. So let's get beyond the must be nice. Uh, I choose time over money, period. End of story. So for you, you have a lot of time as well. You've made it your way of life. How are you setting your hunts up with a mix of, because you do it all, archery, muzzy, rifle, you don't care. You want to elk hunt. Take us through an overview of your approach for tag allocation. Well, for me, rifle's a new thing for me for elk hunting, guys. So when I came from Missouri for the first 25 to 28 years of my elk hunting career, it was archery only. I think I went one time on a rifle because I did not fill my archery tag in Wyoming. And as you know, it's a general tag. So you're able to come back with a rifle. So I did that in Missouri one time and did get a bull then, did finally get my bull. So I did that one rifle hunt. But before that, no. I didn't do anything but archery. I, I love archery. I'm an archery guy through and through. But now that I'm living out west for the past five years, rifle season and muzzle loading options have allowed me to extend my season from I can basically hunt elk now from the end of August till the end of November. And I like that. <laughs> so, and again, I want to say what you said, Dan. My life wasn't always, guys. I if you want to think that I, that I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth, you're crazy. Um, I worked and worked and worked. I'm an entrepreneur like Dan. I spent so many years, hundred hour weeks, but I would always take 20 days off to hunt elk. It's just what I did. And I might have to do a hundred hours a week the rest of the year to do it. And I set my schedules up. Now I missed a couple of years in the 30, but not many. And, but I had to make sacrifices and I do the same thing. Dan says, I know this is the podcast, but we homeschool our kids. I work from home. I'm with my children and my family every single day, all day. They celebrate when I go elk hunting. Maybe it's just because they want to get, <laughs> and they almost, they're ready to get rid of me maybe. But my wife is a, she's just a, I mean, she's an angel, man. I got, I'll give you a quick story, Dan. I was in Wyoming. I told you I did not kill one with archery. I was bummed out. I had chances. Oh, I had chances, but I helped some other guy. It was great. I get home. I wasn't even home 24 hours. And my wife says, well, what are you going to do? I'm like, well, I didn't get one. She goes, you're going to get your gun and you're going to go back down there and you're going to freaking chew one. I'm like, okay, if you say so. And I packed up my llamas, drove back to Wyoming, killed a bull, came back. And, but I wasn't going to go. I really was not. And my wife said, no, no, you're going back to Wyoming. Now, my wife's a big thing about non-resident elk tags. She doesn't mind that I get them, obviously, but she wants me to fill them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so so she that. said, you, <laughs> you get your ass back to Wyoming and get it done. So I licked my wounds, packed up my llamas, and headed back. So anyway, so I am so blessed now that I've kind of retired from my, my main business and I do get to spend. So I know the blessing. And But I will tell you, what I did this year was a mistake. I And again, it was, it was kind of like you said, Dan. I did not plan to have five elk tags. I drew two, Utah and New Mexico, I was not planning on. 
I, I haven't drawn an, an elk tag in New Mexico in 20 years. So I kind of had forgotten I even put in for the thing. And so I got Idaho and my buddy was coming and then I had other people coming for some Montana. And then I had already booked this hunt with my friends to go to Wyoming. And then I drew the freaking New Mexico tag. And I was like, oh no. So then I'm like, okay, I can do this. Well, what happened guys was I ended up hunting so many places for short amounts of time that I couldn't really give it what it needed. Does that make sense? Uh -huh. I do not I do not recommend doing what I just did. I had too much of a good thing. Now, I think it cost me an elk in Idaho because I couldn't go back. I I I already was booked on so many hunts. Now, it was great, but I couldn't really dedicate. I helped my friend kill bull, so I couldn't really get back at the prime time. I wasn't in. I'll be honest with you, the first week of elk season is really not my always my favorite. I mean, I always go. Let me, I always go, but it's not necessarily my favorite. So I really wanted to get back, but I couldn't because I had too many commitments. So I had too much of a good thing this year. But my strategy is Dan, I always want to have now I, I'll go a little bit further. I almost always have three elk tags. Uh, I always have Montana. And I usually have Idaho. This year, I don't have Idaho because I didn't get into the mess that happened this year. And so I'm out of Idaho this year. So I'm I'm going to, but I am going to draw Wyoming again because I have a friend that has a bunch of points. And he's going to share them with me. That's so awesome. So I'll be back in Wyoming. I'll be back in Montana. And I might be going to Colorado or I might go back to Utah. But I am going to put in for New Mexico again and Arizona and Nevada and so on, all my other states that I put in for. So the odds I could, you know, are not good. But I am about ready to draw Arizona sometime soon. I've got a lot of points in Arizona. So one of these days that's going to happen. But I try to have three elk tags. But what I'm trying to do now, Dan, is I try to have early to mid archery. I try to maximize all of the archery. And now I'm looking for muzzleloader and rifle tags to wrap out my season and to allow me to stretch my season out. So that's my strategy. I like that. Yeah. And there's some, I think muzzleloader gets overlooked the most. I know certainly in my state, we have a pretty good muzzy season general tag, uh, New Mexico, which you experienced last year. Got a great little, it's a short season, just like Washington's, but it, it actually is a good option, especially if you do your due diligence, show up early and hit it hard. Muzzy's great. Uh, almost every state, you know, including Colorado, has some really good, like, one-point options to be hunting elk in the rut with a Muzzy. I don't want to say any more than that, but Muzzy's a good option, and you got to know your rules. So that's pretty cool. I think the tag allocation game is the one that gets asked a lot. Uh, I think everyone, I encourage them to play the game, to set aside some Monopoly money that you don't touch so you can afford to play the game, and get yourself in there. Because point creep is definitely a thing, but people will eventually draw or eventually die. And maybe you'll get a chance to hunt some of those dream hunts. I personally it can't wait till I draw a Utah tag. And I know I could hunt Utah over the counter. It's not really Mike, it's not close. I don't really want to hunt elk in August down there. So I'm waiting for that limited entry tag. And I think it's once in a lifetime, isn't it, for non residents? You know, I don't know. I don't, I think, no. yeah, but some of the premier, the premier ones. Yes. Yes. I think they are. 
So I, I want to say one more thing about what you just said, Dan. Guys, this is important. I see people applying for Kaibab Mule Deer, for example, however you pronounce it. Kaibab, don't don't hold me to it. It the primo primo units for mule deer in New Mexico. I mean in Arizona. I guys, I have a couple guys every year that'll send me a message. Hey, I'm gonna start applying for Arizona tags. And I, I want to get one of those one of the Kaibab tags. And they put in, they buy a hunting license. They pay for a hunting license. They pay for the tag, not the tag. They pay for the drawing. And you know what their chance of drawing that tag is? Zero. I mean, let's be honest. They do a random, but they get so many. It's virtually zero. Yep. And with the point, and, and, and I hate to burst your bubble, but with the point creep, if you start putting in right now, you're never going to draw that tag. Never in the history of mankind will you draw that tag. I know that's crazy, but it's pretty true. There's so many people that have so many points in the number of tags they give out. Unless, like Dan said, a bunch of people die from maybe COVID strain too, or, <laughs> some, or something happens, you're not going to draw that tag. Yeah. So, so what I'm saying is, do your research and spend your money wisely. Don't apply for tags that you can't get. You're just wasting your money. And guys, here's the thing. I love to get a glory tag like anybody else, but I'd rather be elk hunting. Like Dan is playing it the way I do. I go for some glory tags, but I am not going for glory tags at the mercy of my other tags. I'm sure you're not either. Uh, there's no way I'm not going to elk hunt at the maximum number of days. So I work the system. I know every two or three years I can draw Wyoming. I can draw it every other year if I'm willing to pay for the freaking special tag, uh, which I am in most cases because I love Wyoming. I go to Idaho every year. I can. I go to Montana, obviously. Colorado's always an option. I can tell one thing. Run real quick about Colorado. If there's any state that the zones of pressure is absolutely critical, it's Colorado. There's no state that has the sheer number of hunters that Colorado has. And you need to understand that from the very beginning. And if you work that and you understand it, you're going to have a great hunt in Colorado. Colorado has twice the elk of any other state. But what do they got? Four or five times the hunters of any other state? So you've got to deal with the pressure. So working out your pressure situation is going to be a real odds multiplier in the state of Colorado. Yeah, man. And Colorado, you know, they haven't changed it yet. Yeah, they got the most elk, but they also have unlimited over-the-counter tags. Like, yo. And they did make a change. I think it was at this year where some of the o OTCs went to a draw, but it only took like a point, correct? Right, but you got to pay attention, guys. This is where you – I have a whole research segment in this course. For example, I want to point that out. I'm glad you said that, Dan, in that example. A lot of these units, now not all of them, the reason they are switching to a draw is because they've been shot out. It's because the elk have been knocked down to a point where they need to let them, you need to bring them back. So don't think for a moment that just because it's a draw unit with one point capable draw that it's a good elk unit. So 
Make sure you look at harvest totals. Make sure you look at bull to cow ratios. Make sure you look at the DMI. Uh, what do they call them? The DM. The basically, you're looking at the elk management report. There, Colorado has an incredible elk management report. You can look at every region. I think they call them DM. I can't remember the name for them. They call them regions. It's not unit specific. It's a region of a of a few units, so to speak. But anyway, they manage the elk herds that way in Colorado. So they do they do this management report where they do populations, how many are there, when they're there, how they migrate. It is gold information. But so make sure when you're picking units and you're looking for places, it's not only because it is a draw, because it might be a draw, because it's gotten not so good anymore and they need to make it good again well we we had a couple units like that in montana unit 250 in montana i'll just say it unit 250 in montana was just it got it got the wolves hammered it the hunters were hammered it so they made it a draw limited the number of people well 10 years later there's some giant elk in that unit right now it's a great unit good luck drawing it as a non-resident but it's a great unit so, but it's, it wasn't a great unit in my, in my opinion, right off the bat. Does that make sense, Dan? Yeah, it does. So do, do your research on that. Cause just because it's a draw unit does not mean it's a good unit. Well, the last thing I think people are wondering is, okay, well, how can I research when I don't know what tags I'm going to have yet? And so maybe you and I can just quickly kind of go over the Western States a little bit and we're going to go very like surface level. And I'm going to start in the southwest corner. New Mexico, Arizona, arguably the biggest bulls. I would even, I would loop Utah into that and Nevada. All those states to me are, are, are a desert vibe for the most part. Again, generally speaking, we'll start with New Mexico. There's no over-the-counter tags, guys. Like you have to draw without points. It's no point system. Or you have to put in with an outfitter, which gives you a little bit more uh, but not not much, and you have to pay the outfitter some sort of fee and hunt with them at least two days, I believe the rule is, or buy a landowner tag. Am I missing anything in New Mexico? That's pretty accurate. I Again, you want to make sure you double-check this, guys, what we're saying. I always read through – here, I don't want to give a plug for you know any particular service, but there's a lot of services out there that provide summaries of, of the regulations. They're usually pretty good. So if you don't want to read the whole book of regulations, some of these, um, and there's some great YouTube videos. There's some great stuff out there. We're just going to try to give you a little breakdown here, what, the way we look at it. But you're right. You can get an outfitter tag. If you have an outfitter lined up in advance, um, you can draw, you can buy a landowner tag. Very expensive. My buddy, I have a friend that does it almost every year. Or you can do what I do. You can put in for the lottery. And wait till your turn. The great thing about New Mexico, though, is it's not very expensive to put in. You have to pay for the tag up front, but you do get refunded. But it's but the actual application process is not terribly expensive. And it's a 100% lottery, which I do like. Yeah. Everybody's got the same chance, just like Idaho. Idaho operates the same way. And I really like that about those two states. Moving on, Arizona. Um, I've hunted there twice. Uh, it is definitely there are over-the-counter opportunities. Uh, I don't know a lot about them. I don't think they're great, but primarily, it's a state that 
is probably one of the most desired places to hunt elk. And there is no landowner. You have to play their game. I don't want to get into the specifics of how their draw works, but it takes a lot of points to draw in Arizona. And there's a whole bunch of nuances. Uh, what else would you add to that? Well, it's just like you said, I, I apply for Arizona. I got the most points of any, of all my states are in Arizona. I've been applying there forever. I have never drawn a tag. So I'm, what am I, 16? I don't even know how many points I got. I quit looking. So, I, but I'm almost ready. After however many dozen years, dozen plus years of drawing, I'm about ready. But I want to add that years ago, a few years ago, the state, now this is my personal opinion, guys. It's not what they said. But the state stopped making money. And what I mean by that is that nobody was applying for New Mexico anymore because it's a true preference point state. There is no way to draw a tag in Arizona, no possible way, until your point total comes up. Well, nobody was putting in anymore. So they couldn't collect all those upfront tag fees. They weren't collecting the administrative fee. They were losing money. So then they gave a random option and it got everybody all excited again. So <laughs> 1% of the tags, now it's more than, I think it's more than one, but barely, they give out as a random. So now everybody thinks they got a chance. You virtually don't. I mean, I hate to burst everyone's bubble, but you virtually don't. Honestly, you're better off to buy a lottery chance in the governor's draw, probably, than you are getting a random draw tag in unit 10 for elk. So, I mean, you can do what you want to do, but if you're working the random component in Arizona, I think you're spending a lot of money for very little chance. But if that's your game, that's your game. No problem. I feel that. Nevada is a state I have hunted uh, archery elk and uh, killed one, and I'm on a wait list to even put back in. It's, uh, they changed it from 10 down to 7 years. I think I have another 4 or 5 years until I can even put in. I did draw with double-digit points. It was incredible. It's very stingy with their tags, not only for non-residents, but residents as well. They do have a few cow hunts here and there and possibly some spike only type stuff. Uh, but ultimately Nevada is another destination location where they do have a random component, I believe, but at the end of the day it's weighted and you just, you're going to have to play the long run game on that. Do you have anything to add in Nevada? Well, they do have landowner tags as well, obviously. It's a glory tag state again. It's one of those states you have to kind of just commit to, doing it and really but again I, I really there's not a lot written out there and i've been thinking about adding a module i've got i think i am going to add a module as time goes on about point creep because you really got to understand what that means and you've got to look at how many so what you basically want to do in a nutshell is if the point total is 20 let's say it takes you 20 points to draw tag a and you look and they give out 100 tags a year and 2,000 people with 20, with 19 points put <laughs> in and didn't draw. Well, yeah. guys, that's 20 years at the same point total before you're ever going to draw that tag. Now, that's not 100% true because people could switch and apply for different units. I know all I get it, but you have to look now. I'm exaggerating this. That's not the case in most states. I'm just want you to be sure you understand 
because this point creep is a real thing. And these states, I'm so ticked off at Arizona and, and some of these states, they will not publish any information about it because they want you applying. They want you thinking you have a chance to draw because they want to collect your draw fees. And I hate to be brutal, but guys, I'm here looking out for you. I'm not here looking out for Arizona. So Arizona, in my opinion, Nevada, some of these other states are doing a disservice to their people by not clearly showing what the realities are of this point creep business. And their license, you have to buy their license in Nevada, and it's over $200. You have to buy a hunting license, yes. It's like $15 or $20 per species to apply. Uh, I give Nevada a lot of money every year, like every year. So it adds up. Um, Utah is a state that does have um, a lot of working pieces. You do have over-the-counter opportunities. Um I don't really want to say too much more about that. I don't want to give away. Like if I were to hunt Utah, I know darn sure where I would go for OTC, but it's not high up on my list. I'm saving up for limited entry and it's, I'm a guy with like probably 13 or 14 points in Utah and I'm, it's not on my radar. I'm not going to draw yet. I'm just not. And there's sleeper units all in there, but Utah's got some of the biggest bulls out of any state. Look up the data. Their tag, you have, I believe you have to buy a hunting license. It's usually 60 or 70 bucks. It's not that bad. But ultimately, the odds are really not that great as well. There's a lot of people in front of me uh, to where the point creep's affecting me with well over double-digit points. But I will. So what I'll add to Utah is Utah really, if you really look at it as a non-resident, we've got better opportunities than the residents have in a lot of cases. Uh, that's true. We can actually apply as non-residents because I think they like the non-resident money. Again, I'm not trying to be ugly to these states. It's a money game for these guys. Let's be honest. It's how they make. It's how they fund their operations. Nothing wrong with that. It's, I think it's gotten a little ridiculous, but it's my personal opinion. But so they allow us as non-residents, we can apply for all kinds of species and all kinds of tags. Residents can't. They're a little more limited. So Utah is a, is a decent non-resident state. It will take you a while to get some of the primo tags. I will say the same thing about the over-the-counter. It's a lot like Colorado. I'm just going to be honest. There's a lot of pressure. You really got to understand your pressure. They've got some elk. They don't. They do not have near the elk that Colorado have. Colorado has, but they've got a lot of pressure. So you've got to really understand that and really kind of work that if you're going to try the over-the-counter. Now I will say unit. Now, I hate to even throw this out there because people are going to get really mad about this, but in some of the premier units in Utah, you can do spike-only hunts, which I know the people that are drawing those tags hate that. They're running into hunters all the time when they're trying to fill the tag of a lifetime. I'm sure that sucks. The guys are out there bugling in bulls when they can't shoot them. And, but you can hunt a lot of areas in Utah for a spike-only and cow hunts, like you mentioned before. so Absolutely. And then there's um, Colorado. So most elk out of all the states in the union, they we talked about it already. So be prepared. They, they do offer over-the-counter, unlimited, highest hunting pressure areas, but the most elk. You do have a lot of areas where muzzleloader starts third week in September. So you could consider that as an option. I don't think it's a great state to build points in. It's a preference, a true preference point state. And someone like me with, again, similar points in Colorado that I do in Utah, uh, I started out uh, 
probably 15 years ago thinking that I was going to hunt the northwest corner someday. And then it and then it went down to you and I'll say units for Colorado cuz it don't matter. And then I was like, well, maybe I'll just put in for 76. That is no longer an option. That is no longer an option, friends. And then there's a next one down below that. I'm not going to say that name, but you could do some research and probably figure out what number I would say. That's no longer an option. And so here I am in purgatory. So I would recommend not really building points in Colorado, but I would recommend maybe that's the one state I would try to learn an area, draw it every year as a backup plan and really get familiar with some country and figure out, you know, your, your points of access, where pressure is, where the elk retreat to, what happens when the muzzy guys show up, and, and learn your patterns. What do you have to add to Colorado? Well, Colorado, I've had the most experience. I hunted 25 years of my past 31 years in Colorado, at least one of my states I hunted that year. So I have a lot of experience in Colorado. And I did what you did. I tried to go for the northwest corner first. I tried to go for some of the other units and the point creep was not possible because it's going it's a true what he what he's talking about with a true preference point state is there's no random option. It's either you have enough points to draw or you don't. Final end of story. But the problem is happening is you've got like I think some of these units now are up to 28, 29 freaking points. But the problem is there's 200 dudes at 28. And they're only taking 50. So it's not going to work out well for you. It's going to take, it's going to take the guys at maximum points in Colorado, maximum multiple years to draw the tag. So, um, but with that said, what I, I will go one step further than what Dan said, I do think Colorado is a great draw state and, but your max points is five. There are some great units in Colorado. I'm not going to name them, but there are some really good elk hunting units that take five, let's call it four to six points. But once you pass that six point, you're in like, you're in Dan's zone. You're in purgatory. You are drawing points for no, virtually no chance of getting to the max. So if you've got more than five or six or even seven points in my opinion you need to cash them in and hunt colorado um and then build them again and get back to five but the, what's great about colorado is you can hunt over the counter and build your points it's fantastic so you can apply which you should always be doing if you're interested in that you apply for a preference point only in colorado don't apply for the tag now they did raise their fees and they did make you have to buy a hunting license like every other freaking state is starting to do, but it's still not terrible. And you can draw your points while you're hunting over the counter. And there are some decent tags, like Dan mentioned, muzzleloading tags that take two to five, six points. There's some good archery units that take that same range. But in that, in that let's call it eight to 20 range, there's not much in that range. It's it's at the top or it's at the bottom. That's kind of it, in my opinion. Then there's that cowboy state. I uh, I happen to love Wyoming. I've hunted it two years in a row. It's a state that I would love to hunt every year. I don't think that's the option for a lot of people unless you have friends willing to share points. And uh, 
their elk numbers are great. They're doing a good job. If you look at their historical data, I believe in the mid 80s, they were around, I don't know, 75 to 80,000 elk statewide. And they're up in the 120s, maybe 130s now. They're doing a good job despite wolves and G-bears. But Wyoming is, uh, they made some changes that made it a lot less sexier. So Mark, I'll let you talk about that. And then you've hunted Wyoming probably more than I have. I think it's a must-apply state. Uh, I would prefer everybody didn't apply for it, but uh, it's a good state and I'm, I'm going to shoot people straight. Yeah, I'm going to shoot them too. I hate to mention it. I hate to even talk about Wyoming because, I, you know, but we're both in the same boat, guys. I'm, I decided a few years ago that I really, I want to see elk hunting be successful and thrive and not be eliminated. And the only way that's going to happen is if the hunters band together and we support each other and quit, quit, quit playing this game of bashing people. What all the stuff that goes on nowadays, it's ridiculous. All we're doing is hurting ourselves. You know, united, not divided. That's what I'm standing by. That's right. That's right. And even when I created this course, I've gotten a lot of hate from gut on this course the people are like why in the world would you lay it out like that i'm like because i wish somebody would have done it for me from missouri when i started 30 years ago because my first six or seven years guys were pretty thin mm-hmm. i killed I, I killed some elk but a lot of times it was pure accident <laughs> <laughs> but, i mean the elk ran into my bow i mean they, you know virtually <laughs> so I just, I love sharing it now. Now, I know I get hate and some, but it's okay. But Wyoming's one of those states, I'm going to just tell you. It's my number one state. If I had to hunt any state for the rest of my life, it would be Wyoming. Even living in Montana, we battled. When we moved to Montana, we almost moved to Wyoming. It's pretty desolate in in Wyoming for the most part, so we just couldn't live there. But you can hunt Wyoming every year almost, if not every other year, if you're willing to play the game and buy the dang special tag. Now, if you want to buy the regular price tag, it's going to take you about every three years, at least at the current pace. Now, like Dan said, I'm expecting that to change. I think the hunting pressure for Western hunting is increasing based on what I've been seeing, especially what just happened in Idaho. And I expect it to start going up and become more problematic, but I love Wyoming, and I think it's the best managed state out there. Their seasons are broken up. Now, you got to really know what you're doing in Wyoming because the seasons start at all kinds of weird times based on unit by unit by unit. It's not like all rifle season starts October 1st or all archery season starts. There's some units that you can't hunt until a certain time archery. There's some units you got to have a type 9 tag. It's good for the first 15 days, and then you can hunt with a general tag. So you really got to read your regs in Wyoming. You really got to understand what you're doing in Wyoming. Can't hunt the wilderness, which that's the one thing I don't want to get into, but that ticks me off. I pay for that freaking wilderness with my taxes and I can't hunt it. Well, you can camp there and fish there. Oh, you can do everything. <laughs> except uh, hunt big game. Let's not talk about let's it. Don't get on, let's don't even get me started. So um, I love Wyoming, but you got to learn. You got to play the game. You know, and uh, they've got general tags. They've got archery only tags. They've got all different types of tags. So you got to understand it. And it's a preference point only state too, just like Colorado. 
you can apply for preference points only. What that means is you don't have a chance of drawing a tag, which is good for most people because they maybe they got another tag set up, but they just want to get a point. So you can, for the next year, future years. So it's one of those states that you can buy preference point only tags and it's not, now they have raised their fees, but it's still not astronomical compared to a lot of other states. And I actually think it's one of the best values for drawing, if I remember correctly. I, I haven't looked at my budget on my tag drawing allocations in a while, but I think it's one of the cheapest states that you can actually put in for in the long run. So anyway, Wyoming's a great state. Yeah, and they they do a good job, honestly. Like we talked about it, but I'll shoot you straight, man. I I, I did the special last year. It's it kind of sucks walking around with a thirteen hundred dollar elk tag in your pocket, guys. So just want to warn you, like it's a little more digestible at seven hundred, and I don't know why the extra five hundred dollars is just it. It I, I walked around going, good God, this is. Uh, this is an expensive elk tag, and it was a lot of hunting pressure, even though it's well-managed. So, uh, word of the wise there. Okay, so then there's Idaho, which obviously made a lot of changes this year with allocating non-residents and, and literally applying a quota of how many over-the-counter non-resident elk hunters can be in each elk hunting zone uh, for elk specifically. So, you know, like the panhandle, which is units one through nine, right by, right next door to me, I believe they allocated 600 non-resident archery elk tags for that area. And that's it. Once 600 people select that is where they're going in those tags. That's it. No more non-residents and every zone got an allocation and Idaho's a little different. So they'll, they'll group zones or I'm sorry, zones are more like a group of units. Some are nine units long, some are four, et cetera, et cetera. So you got to do your research, but I do think it is a, a positive thing for better experiences. I just don't think that the state of Idaho is uh, addressing, again, I'll get hate for this. The biggest issue is so many people are moving to Idaho and when you become a resident of Idaho, you can get an elk tag for wherever you want for over-the-counter general areas. And I think there's a lot of pressure there. But Idaho is a great state for the most part. There's some areas that are definitely wolfed out. That is a thing for sure. But I love Idaho. It is my favorite state. What's your thoughts? Same. It's become one of my it's probably my third state now on my list. Mm -hmm. I'm Wyoming. I'm Wyoming, then Montana, then now Idaho. So I live in Missoula. And my first two years here in Montana, I didn't hunt Idaho. I, I was so, guys, I'll just be honest with you. I was so starstruck about living in Montana and just being here to hunt elk in Montana. It was a dream come true for me. So it was funny you said that, day. So for my first 25 years coming from Missouri, I never hunted Montana. I had this problem. When I lived in Missouri, I couldn't drive west. I could not drive through a state that had elk to get to another state that had elk. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. So it was the same old routine for me. It was Wyoming every two to three. It was every two years back then. Wyoming every other year. Colorado every year. And New Mexico. I was drawing New Mexico tag about once uh, every three to five years. And so I just went back and forth to those three states because they were the closest states to hunt elk. <laughs> I love it. So I, so I never made it to Montana, never made it to Idaho, um, these other states. Now, 
I will say that once I was here for a couple of years, you know, I didn't have anybody from around here. My friends that I had made in Montana hunting Idaho, I just packed up myself, did some solo hunting my first couple of years in Idaho. I loved it. Killed a couple of decent, nice bulls there. And now I'm addicted to Idaho. The only reason I didn't do Idaho this year was not because of the crazy draw. I knew it was going to be bad. Um, well, it wasn't even a draw, the whole get on the phone, stupid circus they had. So I knew that was going to be bad, but it's, it's, it's a great state for me to have an extra tag, but I had too many tags last year. And now that I know that I'm going to probably get a Wyoming tag and I know that I'm going to get a Montana tag and I'm going to do more mule deer hunting this year than I've ever done before. So I decided to take a little break on Idaho. So next year I'll be back in Idaho again for sure. And, um, or try to, now I am, I will say this. I am going to get in the draw in Idaho this year. Oh I yeah. I think this is, uh, so I'll definitely try the draw for a couple units. And if that happens, so be it. But, um, so Idaho is weird. One of the things you didn't say about Idaho is it's good. It's one of the best States I think for drawing, except for the way they handle this stupid dial in the phone business. They got to stop. That's got to end. It needs to be a, just a draw lottery. That's it. And, uh, but this waiting on hold and getting kicked off. And I mean, that stuff's got to be stopped, but so they've got this lottery system, so to speak, or the first one to call in or whatever for a, several regions. Some are more popular than others, but now all of them are popular because they limited the number of tags like Dan just mentioned, but they also have a draw component. And so they have a select number of units. Some are good. Some are not, honestly not all that great. So again, just because it's a draw doesn't mean it's good. It just means they want to limit the number of people in there. It doesn't mean there's a ton of elk in there. So be careful with that. But they have a draw called control tags that you can put in and draw as well as these additional tags. But what I will say is what I do like about Idaho with the draw is you have to pick your species. You can't draw for moose, sheep, goat. And then draw for deer and elk, right? Is that correct? Correct. That is correct. You, you you have to pick, which I think that helps the draw odds for the, especially it helps for the moose, sheep, and goat draw odds for sure, I think. But I also think it helps with the control unit. I like that they do that. You kind of have to pick. And they also have a waiting time. I'm not sure what it is off the top of my head. So when you do draw one of those tags, you have to wait. It's some. I, some of them might be a lifetime. I'm not sure. So moose is once in a lifetime. Sheep and goat. Those are all oil tags. I've drawn a moose. I'm out of the game. Um, you're absolutely right. And the control tags, you know, it's a pretty late in the year controlled. It's one of the later, the last ones. And so it's something to check out. And um, uh, yeah, I guess I'll say it. There's also people that draw their tags and then they never go down to Walmart and pick up the control tag. So there's a leftover draw even later in the year, like in August. So you just have to keep your eye on Idaho. It's a it's got some opportunity for sure. Man, Dan, you're you're giving out some pretty serious nuggets in this podcast. This is this one's gonna be fire. I figured when you started out swinging, I'm like, well, let's just give everybody the information. Okay, let's talk. I can always go back and I can take that out if you want. No, I love it. Just get, I mean. I think you should leave it in. Even leave this discussion in. I oh, we are. We are, man. We're unfiltered. So I, I have this theory, Mark, and it's not looking good. <laughs> if if you're a non-resident and you were like, oh, I'm going to hunt Montana. I got a pretty good chance of getting that uh, Montana tag. 
I think this is the year you're going to be in for a surprise with how many people didn't get their over-the-counter go-to tag that they usually do. Well, they're going to look to Montana. And I think the Montana draw this year, which we're going to find out, is going to be the hardest one historically in Montana to just get a general, a freaking general elk tag. That's what I think. To get a $1,000 elk tag. Yep. I think it's going to be hard to do. Well, you had a Montana tag this year, correct? Yeah. So you are the only person that I know personally that I would consider, you know, a friend of mine that drew, drew a Montana elk tag. Wow. So you didn't realize it, but it already happened last year. Wow. I had several friends, Missouri, Utah, all over the place that were wanting to come here and hunt. Some wanted to come with me. They kind of messed up my season to be totally honest. This is part <laughs> of what messed, this is part of what messed up my season. Cause I don't want to get into it, but some of my friends, my really, really good friends that I thought would draw did not draw. So I could not hunt Wyoming. I'm sorry, Montana with them because they didn't draw a tag. So I had to go with them to other states. So what ended up happening was a lot of people, I should have looked at the percent before we got on the podcast, but it was, I think it was historically low, the percent of draw last year. So it's even going to be way worse this year. So this is a state that most people have not been used to buying points in. So I hope I'm not a non-resident of Montana. So I hope I get this correct. You can tell me if I'm correct on this, Dan, but the way it works for non-resident general tags, which is mostly what you're going to go for in Montana. If you're a non-resident, all the draw tags are very, very difficult to get as a non-resident for the most part. But the general tag is a pure um, preference point operation. So Montana in general is a bonus point system state for residents and a lot of other tags. But when it comes to the general tag, if you're a non-resident, the people that have the most points get the first tags and then they work their way down the list. So for example, everyone that had one or more points last year, all got tags. All of the, I think all of the one point holders got tags last year. And then a certain percentage, because I know you probably didn't have any points. No, I did. I had a preference. Okay, so you had, you're one of, and then, so all the people that had points got a tag, for example. And then a certain percentage of all the people that didn't have a point, it's their first year, got tags. But I think this year, it's going to be incredibly tough to draw Montana without a point. I think there was enough people last year that didn't get drawn, that didn't have a point, that now have a point, that it's going to be tough. And if not this year, for certainly next year. So, And they could go back in and buy their preference point way late in the year. So what I'm starting to what what I'm getting ready to say here is that Montana is a state that you need to put on your radar, start buying preference points. You never really had to. For the past five years, you haven't had to do it. It actually was a waste of money to buy a preference point because every they had leftover tags until just a couple years ago. Well, I used to buy a leftover tag. I used to literally hunt Idaho, buy my tags at the gas station, kill a bull, go back to the gas station, kill a bull, 
then drive over to Montana to a gas station, buy a leftover. Like that's those days are gone. They're history, man. So because there's jackasses like us giving all this off, awesome information. Okay, last two states, guys, is and I'm gonna lump them together. Is Washington and Oregon um, both? Don't ask me to add my advice. I have no. Oh, you 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 know more than you let on. Okay, so I don't know a ton about Oregon. I've never hunted Oregon for anything, but it is actually on my radar. It's a state that I'm. It's on my radar for over the counter elk. I would go Eastern Oregon. There is a lot of units that do have a lot of roads, but there's good densities of elk and. Uh, people in Oregon hate me, but I, I do think Oregon's a good OTC state. And I think that, uh, there's some places to get away from people and it's good. And then on the flip side, there's the Roosevelt side and there's really good Roosevelt hunting and just a different type of creature, really a different style of elk hunting, but there's elk there and it, there's, it's over the counter, you know, for the most part. And then same with Washington and Washington divides their state east and west as well. And you can get an east side tag. So east of the Cascades or a west side tag west of the Cascades. And those are rosies. They even have some kind of hybrid elk in there as well. But um, I would hunt my home state if I if I needed my second elk tag. Let's say I got an Idaho tag and I couldn't get my Montana tag, couldn't get a Wyoming tag, didn't draw anything in the Southwest. I would hunt my home state for sure. And I'd give it hell. I think it would be, I would have a chance for sure of getting an elk. So, um, don't count these two States out, especially as the, you know, for years they've been probably put on the shelf because like Washington has a terrible 12 or 13 day archery season. That's it. But you know, it's still a good state, and, and Oregon's got a lot better archery season as far as length. But um, both states are still good. They're just there's a lot of humans that live in both states, especially Portland, Seattle. So there's just um, historically a lot of pressure. So you got to take Mark's course and figure out you know how to hunt these places from your laptop. So um, we did it. We covered we covered a good snapshot. The second half of the podcast worth its weight in gold, guys, for sure. Yeah, some good stuff there. I will add that, you know, Washington, there must be something going on with Washington because almost every license plate I see in Montana is Washington. <laughs> no comment. So, <laughs> you guys are buying a lot of non-resident tags, and you guys are crawling all over this state. So if we ever get to the point we want to ban interstate access, I vote for banning Washington for coming to Montana. <laughs> I think Idaho people would agree. They call us apple maggots. My buddy Dirk Durham calls me an apple maggot. We are. We are. It's And I think it just boils down to we have elk, but we just don't have very much time. We don't get much time to hunt them. You have to choose your weapon, and it's very short, very short season date. So. Well, and, and seriously, all my, all my Washington folks, I'm just kidding. I, Guys, I'm a non-resident. If you're going to find a person, the last thing I'll say for the podcast here, if you're going to find a person that lives in a Western state that is more pro non-resident, you're going to have to look pretty hard to find a person more pro non-resident than me. Cause I lived it for 25 years of my elk hunting career, 28 years of my elk hunting career. I was a non-resident hunting all over the place. I know the pain. I know the cost. I know how difficult it is to pick places and work it out. Guys, I created this course for two reasons. One, 
obviously help you find more elk, but two, to really pave the way for some of these guys that dream. I don't know a whitetail hunter from the Midwest. I don't know one that doesn't dream of hunting elk. Now, they may never do it, but they kind of in the back, whether they want to admit it or not, they're fascinated by They just wish they could. Maybe they wish they were in shape enough. Maybe they should have taken the they should have taken the, uh, I loved it, the chub challenge. Maybe they should have done some things to get better, to get there. But I don't know one. I've never met one that's not got some fantasy or desire to hunt elk. So I am a big fan of non-residents. Even in, I love to, I love to get to a spot and see a truck from, from the Midwest. I'm like, those guys are getting it. Even though I'm a little, maybe a little ticked off, they might be in my spot. I'm like, oh, at least they're, I'd almost rather see that than Montana people in my spot, to be totally honest with you. I just, I like it, you know, and let's be real. Montana gives out, I think it's 15,000 non-resident tags. I Don't quote me on that. That's it. So I like the fact that when it's over, it's over. Colorado, I'm a little worried about the total numbers of people hunting that state. I'll be honest with you. But mm -hmm. I like the states like Idaho, and Montana, even though they kind of have over-the-counter, sort of, not really, but they're kind of more available. Wyoming, same thing. You know you can get it with a few points. At least you know that it's going to be a fixed number of people. Okay, that's it. Now, what I think you're going to start seeing in the future now is what Dan mentioned before. This isn't all gloom and doom. What ends up happening, guys, is when these states get so popular... Everybody's just trying to draw, trying to draw, trying to draw, and then they never end up hunting them. So actually what happens when the demand gets higher, there's actually less hunting pressure because guys will go for tags. And when they draw Montana, like they'll just bail on the, for guys, what I'm going to say for guys that money means nothing, they'll just have an Idaho tag. And they just won't go or they have a Wyoming tag. They just don't go, but mm -hmm. they knew they had to apply because they wanted to get a tag and then they have getting a couple extra tags or whatever the case may be, just like Dan said. In Idaho, people apply for control tags and for some reason or the other don't get a chance to go for whatever reason. And um, so anyway, so I, one thing, I, last thing I'll add on the draw, Dan, is pay attention to the application dates. And I don't mean that just by when they occur. But pay attention when you get notified of the results. Guys, there's a strategy, and I work this strategy. I know that I'm going to get results from New Mexico and Arizona and Nevada. and Utah. I'm going to get some results back before I ever have to put in for Utah. Because Utah is a June, I think a June deadline. So I work that system. So I know that if I do get lucky and I draw a couple tags, I'm not wasting money on a couple of other states that have a little bit later draws. So now you can't do that with every state because some of them just don't work out that way. But some of these states have early notifications. So I always go for those states because then I know what to do with my other states. Does that make sense? So pay attention to that too. Oh, great job. Well, guys, check out Mark's uh, e-scouting masterclass, treelineacademy.net. Uh, use discount code ELKSHAPE if you're not already and start learning, start the process. That's what I'm doing. We gave away a lot of information here today. We will get some hate, but honestly, your success is our success and your success will not get in the way of my success. We're, we're all on the same team. Unity, let's not 
Let's not be divided. Uh, Mark's also on Instagram as well. I'm going to leave links to everything in the show notes as well as the discount codes that we have for other uh, partners. Appreciate you guys tuning in. Good luck on tag allocation. You have lots of e-scouting. There's not a day that doesn't go by where there isn't something you can do to make yourself better and get prepared for elk season. So what I'm saying is separation is in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one. Well, guys, there you have it. Mark Libesay, dropping knowledge bombs. Appreciate you, Mark. I got a lot of respect for you, and I love your hustle. Hustle is my love language. Guys, appreciate you listening to this podcast. If you haven't been to theoutcollective.com, that's a project that I've been a part of for over uh, eight months now. We've built a 120-something video library on everything from how to kill an elk, how to scout, how to get the best elk tags, how to break down an elk like stroke for stroke with a knife, how to call elk every sound, how to hunt high-pressured elk, backcountry gear. It's a, it's a whole library. It's basically a new school way of learning how to elk hunt digitally. You know, there's been some other ones that in the past, and they're primarily written in P- articles in PDF form. We ain't got time to read, but we do have time to listen to the audio of these videos or watch the videos. So we made a deep library. It's called theelkcollective.com. I'm a part of it. I'm proud to be a part of it. Check it out. I appreciate you guys listening to this podcast. We will catch you on the next one.